This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. fans how you doing it's your boy john of the macri with you for another episode of the Knicks film school podcast um just wanted to give a, a very quick intro to the episode because we got a two-parter so give you a little quick heads up of what you're gonna hear um so as you know from earlier in the week the knicks are um apparently making a new hire uh to their front office brock Aller, um, I've been calling him Aller, but one of our guests today actually corrected me. It's it's Aller, not Aller. Um, so we got two people who um, are knowledgeable about Brock um, on today's episode. The first of which is uh, Chris Fedor. He is um, someone who writes for Cleveland.com. He is as knowledgeable about uh, the Cavs as anyone um, has had several conversations with Brock knows him for years and uh, yeah uh, he gave us some really great insights and then um, our and our conversation also included some other stuff um, about where Cleveland might be looking to go in the draft where they sit with Kevin Love Um, it was really good and um interesting conversation and one that I, I think you will enjoy. Um, so that's up first. And then for the second half of our episode, um, I got Sam Quinn coming on, uh, from CBS sports.com, um, who spoke to a little bit of the cap gymnastics, so to speak that, um, Aller uh, did while he was with the Cavs, and uh, I have to say it was uh, it was encouraging to hear it. Um, so both of those conversations are are coming up shortly. Also, um, shameless plug uh, one more time for my man, uh, the man, the myth, the legend, Andrew Claudio. Um, if you haven't already done so, check out his podcast. It's really good. It's called The Final Score. It's available on all major podcast platforms. Um, and he also produces the show, um, which is why I don't mind standing for him a little bit, but it's not only that his, the podcast is excellent. Um, and it's not just cause I appeared on an episode last week. It's, uh, it's just really good. All right. That's it. Let's get to, uh, the first of our two conversations with, uh, Chris feeder of cleveland.com. Nick Finn, 
right. Um, I have a very special guest with us on the line right now. Uh, as you know, the Knicks have made a new hire or not official yet, but are going to be making a new hire for their front office. Uh, I've been calling him uh, Brock Aller. I was corrected a moment ago by our guest. Uh, it is actually Brock Aller. So already we're we're uh, getting things uh, corrected over here. Um, and that guest, very, very, very honored to be joined by Chris Fedor of Cleveland.com. Uh, first and foremost, Chris, how are you holding up with everything going on? I'm doing good. I'm healthy. I'm safe. Uh, that's the most important thing at this point in time, right? So um, it could be a lot better. It could be a lot worse. So we'll take that. Yeah, I think that that's the prevailing thought um, as everybody is doing their part and trying not to uh, go insane, um, especially if you have small yeah. children running around a small house like I do. But we don't need to talk about that right now. Um, so uh, I reached out to you because the Knicks are on the precipice of making a hire um, of a guy that, you know, other than a, a quote that has been floating around by your owner about um you know, him being like kind of a whiz with the cap, I don't think people know a whole lot about. So uh, I'll just start here. What can you tell us about Brock Aller? I think that's what it is, though, Jonathan. I mean, I think when you start to talk about him and his credentials and, and why the Knicks are interested in him, um, it comes down to that. He does a great job in terms of strategic planning for the organization, both on the basketball and business side. And he's really, really good at understanding the cap on a deep level um, in a way that maybe some other guys aren't. And he's been able to um, make some trades that didn't seem possible for the Cavs. The J.R. Smith one comes to mind with the New York Knicks. You know, he pulled off a trade a couple of years ago for Brendan Haywood at a time that his contract was really, really funky because of the way that it was set up. And they actually had to put a rule in place to prevent that from happening moving forward. So he's just always thinking ahead about how he can um, do some things within the rules and the parameters of the league to set the team up for the most success when it comes for, uh, to a salary cap. And when it comes to just big picture planning. So you, you, very comfortable. I, I could tell already, like giving him the the credit for some of this stuff. And it's it's so different because here in New York, um, there's often a lot of not often. There always is a lot of mystery around who the hell does what behind the scenes at MSG. Right. And we we often don't know. Well, like, you know, and even and usually it's it's more in line with like, well, who gets the blame for something is is it pretty widely known in Cleveland that this is like, you know, it's his department. He's the one that is responsible for these kind of um, very, I'll say it, brilliant cat machinations. The more I'm digging, the more I, I just am very impressed by this stuff. Yeah, I think it is well known. I think it's well known because it's well documented. And I think it's well known because so many people within the organization, whether it be Dan Gilbert, David Griffin before him, Kobe Altman now as the general manager, you know, some of the the, the main decision makers within the organization have always singled out Brock and they've let it be known that these moves that we have made in the past, they don't happen without Brock because of what he knows. Um, David Griffin talked about him and Brock being in the quote unquote nerd cave, you know, so <laughs> <That's great. laughs> I, I think he's been known around Cleveland in the nicest way possible as the nerdy numbers guy behind the scenes that allows the Cavs to make these things work when you think they can't work. 
you know, so many people go to the trade machine and stuff like that, and they come up with these fake trades. And you always hear, oh, that can't work under the salary cap, or no, you can't do that. And he's always somebody who has been able to just make things work that you would think aren't going to work from a salary cap perspective. And I think it was a couple of years ago, David Griffin even said it on the record. Um, we asked him about a trade, that J.R. Smith trade that I brought up before. Sure, remember And he basically well. came out and said, yeah, he basically came out and said, I don't even think about that, if not for Brock thinking about how we can make it work. So he's just an idea guy, and he's always trying to think about how to improve the team the best possible way um, and thread the needle between the short and the long term. Yeah, he, you know, um, it seems, you know, even with like the the setup for the Mozgov trade where there were kind of a series of moves to get them in position to even do that, that went back, you know, months before. Um, It, it, it feels like he is maybe ready for a bit more responsibility. And and the term that has been tossed around um, here, I think one of the beat guys had it that uh, he's going to be more like a Leon Rose's chief of staff. Have, has there been like an indication that he may be ready for for that type of responsibility from what you could tell? I think so, because I think they've given him more other responsibilities um, throughout the course of the last couple of years. And he continues to get these promotions. You know, he officially joined the front office in the 2013-14 season. And then just three, four years after that, he became... Um, what he was most recently with the Cavs, senior director of basketball operations. So you see him taking these small steps and you see the Cavs um, giving him a little bit more on his plate, a little bit more responsibility, right? Um, and he's done well each time that he's been given more responsibility. So when you think about his career and the trajectory I honestly think a big part of this, Jonathan, is Brock trying to show people that he can be more than just a capologist. He can be more than just the numbers guy. And he can be more than somebody who is like there is this there is this belief and has gone back a couple of years. And and I've talked to uh, a number of different people in the Cavs organization about this, including Brock, um, that there are people who in the past have said well, the only reason why he's in the NBA is because he was Dan Gilbert's right-hand man um, or he was Dan Gilbert's henchman or however you want to phrase it, right? In a negative slant towards that. And I think this opportunity kind of gives him an opportunity to step out onto his own and say, yes, I can be successful. I'm not just here because Dan thought I was smart or Dan gave me this opportunity. Like I earned more opportunities. I earned more responsibilities. I earned these promotions and it wasn't all because of my relationship with Dan. That's, that's encouraging. Um, because I, I think, you know, there, there's been a lot, you know, if there's one, if there's one word that I would use, and I, I'm curious what your perception is from the outside looking in, um, cause everybody has an opinion about the Knicks. Um, like the, mm. the word I would use for the front office over the last few years is, kind of stale I, I i guess would be yeah. and, and trust me there, i know there's a lot more derogatory terms that could be used but i <laughs> i think 
I think functional. I've heard that one. Yeah, there's there's some there's some choice words, maybe some that have been used by me on this podcast um, after some more frustrating <laughs> moments. But um, I, I, I this is to say that the idea of someone coming in almost with like a you know. I don't want to say a chip on their shoulder, but it sounds like that's almost how right. you're you're painting Brock. If if I'm reading you correctly, so that's good. Um, there's no negative uh, connotation in Cleveland to somebody being, you know, at one point in time, I guess, like you said, Gilbert's right hand man. Because I know if if somebody had that uh, label here in New York as like Dolan's mm-hmm. guy, it wouldn't it wouldn't fly very very well. Um, <laughs> so how, how does that work over there? Uh, I think it depends who you ask. Okay. Right. I, I think it, it's that case in, in any kind of situation. I think everybody has a different definition of what they think makes a good owner. Um, and there is a segment of fans here in Cleveland, a segment of people here in Cleveland that feel like Dan is a great owner because he'll give um, the front office different resources that maybe um, other owners around the NBA won't. And he'll be willing to spend and he won't um, make any cost cutting type moves. And for some people, that's enough, right? For other people, they look at the results of what the Cavs have been in a post LeBron world twice. And they say, well, you'd never really have been able to figure it out without the best player in the NBA. And I think it's up to everybody to judge whether they think that's fair or not. That particular criticism But I think for the detractors of Dan Gilbert, for the ones that feel like he's not one of the top owners in the NBA, that's what it comes down to. And I think he still has to prove that he can be the owner that can succeed doing it the right way, not shortcutting the process, right? Not just spending a bunch of money to build this quote unquote super team. Um, And it remains to be seen if he can actually do that. And it's going to be fascinating to see if he can do that. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm always curious about other situations around the league. um, You know, especially ones that, that aren't so good because I'm always wondering like, well, you know, what are other teams doing to try to improve themselves? Um, And I, I think the Cleveland situation is fascinating. And what you just talked about, how they've kind of struggled since LeBron left, um, you know, both times, Talking about the one most recently, the one thing they did do, um, or one of the things they did, was sign Kevin Love to um, a rather large extension. And it's a good transition here because I personally am of the belief that Leon Rose did not – let me rephrase that. He was not brought here – to turn the Knicks into like um, Raptors South and have like the best developmental system in the league. Like, I wish that was the case. I just don't think that is true. Mm -hmm. I think he's going to go name hunting this summer. Mm -hmm. And Kevin Love is a name. I'm curious, what is, how is Love viewed in Cleveland? I know there were some moments that probably some people weren't too happy about this season, but in terms of just like his contract, how is he viewed as like an asset? Is he viewed as an asset? Is he viewed as an albatross? Like, how do you guys see him there? So here's the biggest problem, I think, when it comes to the Cavs and the value that they've placed on Kevin and the value that other people around the NBA have placed on Kevin. Jonathan, it does not line up whatsoever. Huh. The Cavs view him as an asset. They see the value that he brings both on the court and off the court. 
and they will tell you that they do not regret the contract extension that they signed him to. And they still think that they're going to get value from him in a multitude of different ways, both on the court in terms of developing the young guys, right? So now Darius Garland doesn't have to do as much because you have somebody like Kevin. Now Colin Sexton doesn't have as much responsibility early in his career because you have somebody like Kevin. Now you have a space, the floor big that can help spread things out so that Colin Sexton can attack the basket or Darius Garland can attack the basket. And that's the on-court type impact. And then behind the scenes, they feel like his voice matters. The fact that he's a five-time all-star, his work ethic, his professionalism, guys see that on a daily basis. They see what it takes. He's been a champion, so he can tell them what it takes to be a champion and what it looks like to be a champion. And then they think the contract, based on some of the other contracts signed by some other guys recently, isn't that exorbitant. They think that they could still potentially get a combination of players and picks. Now, they haven't been right on that, and the NBA doesn't see it the same way, but that's how they view him. Um, It's going to be very interesting to see like if that view remains the same as we continue to progress in this particular rebuild. But their vision ultimately, Jonathan, was always Kevin Love as part of this rebuild, a significant part of this rebuild with young guys around him that he could influence the proper way. Yeah, I'm, it's an interesting situation to me because my read, again, from afar is that things got um, a little bit better over there after the coaching change. Is that is that fair to say? Oh, or? they did. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, they did. And, and interesting because I had talked to a number of different people close to Kevin um, a couple of months before the trade deadline, and they just kept saying the same thing. He wants out. He doesn't want to be a part of this. Uh, being here in Cleveland after being at the top of the mountain and winning a championship and now having to go through a rebuild again, it's something that he's struggling with mentally. He, um, somebody close to him told me that he was referring to it as a mind bleep. You know what I mean? I don't know if we can swear on this. You could say whatever you want. (laughs) Uh, He referred to it as a mind fuck. Like that's just the kind of thing that he was dealing with throughout the course of the season on top of, John Beeline and how difficult he was and how he wasn't willing to meet players and other members in the organization halfway and how he was inconsistent and how he was overbearing and things like that. So you put that all together in a big soup and you can understand where the frustration was coming from. But from what I've been told, it's not the same level. And Kevin has a great relationship with JB Bickerstaff. It goes back to their time together when Kevin was a young player with the Minnesota Timberwolves. And Kevin has a great relationship with the Bickerstaff family in general. So the feeling that Kevin had a couple of months before the trade deadline is not the feeling that he has today. And I think that helps in terms of the Cavs aren't going to be forced into what they would consider a bad deal for Kevin because he's that unhappy and because it's that toxic. Uh, well, I mean, that's that's good for you guys. Um, and, and just hearing you talk about how the situation kind of was, was not so great last year, it makes me happy, again, thinking back to um, Aller, uh, that he's used to, uh, you know, operating in maybe not 
Always the most pleasant of situations, which, as we know, uh, sometimes over here can can be the case. Um, gut feeling, you think Kevin is on the team um, opening night, whenever the heck it is, uh, for the 2021 season? Jonathan, I keep saying yes, simply because I don't think the Cavs are going to get the offer that they'd be willing to say yes to. Gotcha. That that makes sense. Um, Chris, before I let you go, I do want to ask you about the draft because um, the Cavs are, uh, if the odds work out, going to pick before the Knicks. Um, and because, you know, Nick fans are always thinking of something, there's been a lot of attention to who they might end up with in the draft. Um, I'm curious in, in Cleveland, is there um, a consensus or a popular opinion as to who uh, they would like to see the Cavs end up with, or maybe a couple of guys they'd like to see the the Cavs end up with with their first pick? So you kind of know how this goes, Jonathan. If if you're in a market where there is a local tie to a player, somehow, some way, yeah. a lot of people will gravitate towards that guy. So it's Obi Toppin. That's the sense that I get from a lot of fans. Dayton, uh, Dayton was the story of the year in college basketball. I guess he has fewer question marks at this point than somebody like LaMelo Ball, James Wiseman, Anthony Edwards, even Denny Avdia. Like any of those guys come with abundance of questions. And a lot of people watched Obi Toppin play in college basketball and they saw him be one of the best players in college basketball. So I think fans have more of a comfort with him. Um, I don't believe that the Cavs view him in the same tier as the top three guys. I think the Cavs have a top tier that consists of LaMelo Ball, James Wiseman, Anthony Edwards. And if they were to get the first overall pick, I think they would take one of those three guys. Um, And I think tier two is kind of where Avdia, Toppin, Isaac Okoro, some of those other guys group together. Um, I think the Cavs want to swing for the fences when it comes to the draft. And they want to try and get a star, if a potential star if they feel like there is one at the time that they're picking. And if not, then I think they would try and play it the safer route and say, we'll just try and get a rotational player in a draft with a ton of uncertainty. So it really does, Jonathan, I think, depend on where they're drafting and weighing the risk versus reward there. That that makes a ton of sense. I'm, I'm As you were talking, I just thought of a quick follow-up because you mentioned ball. Um, it, if, mm-hmm. Is there a, a scenario where you think Colin Sexton is is not on the team next year? I mean, if the, I mean they, I, I maybe it could work with them and Garland, but I, it, <laughs> what do you? Um, or did am I opening up a can of worms here? <laughs> no, I don't. Think you're opening up a can of worms. I think it's something they absolutely have to consider because they're so guard heavy, and in some ways they're so big heavy too, Jonathan. And the problem with this draft is it's guard and big heavy. Yeah, <laughs> there, yeah. there aren't a lot of wings. Every team in the NBA is looking for that three and D wing perimeter type player. And that guy really doesn't exist in the draft. I think that's why so many people are really intrigued by Denny Avdia yeah. and saying, Hey, maybe possibly can he be that guy? Because he has the size, because he has the athleticism, because you feel like he's more of the NBA prototype these days. Um, I think the Cavs would just take the best player. I don't think they're overly concerned about fit this early in the rebuild. And I think they trust J.B. Bickerstaff as a head coach to just find a way to make it fit. But you bring up Colin, and I've been writing about this for the last couple of months. 
it's going to be sooner than people realize where they're going to have to make a decision about Colin because there's going to be a contract extension coming his way in the near future. And if he continues on this trajectory, Jonathan, the way that he's playing, we're talking about Jamal Murray money. We're talking about Jalen Brown money. We're talking about um, Buddy Heald money. Like that's the kind of extension that Colin Sexton is on his way to. And I just don't know that the Cavs know enough about him. I don't know that we know enough about him to say yes or no, he's worth that kind of deal. You know, at the time that the league shut down, he was in the best stretch of his career. He was one of the best players in the Eastern Conference over the last two plus months. So you liked the progress that you were seeing. I just don't know that they feel like an undersized shooting guard is worth the kind of money that we're talking about Colin having to uh, make at some point in the future because he is playing that well. So they have a lot of decisions, I think, Jonathan, that they have to make when it comes to team building and trying to find the right fit. And I don't know, though, that that's for this year. I think that's more in the future gotcha. uh, when those decisions have to come instead. Well, that's good because I, I don't know that I could uh, mentally prepare myself soon enough for if if the Cavs, if you guys took ball um the amount of fake trade proposals that would come across my twitter account between trying to get ball trying to get sex and trying to get garland just all of the uh yep. yeah everything um it would be uh it would be a bit much i, I need some time to before I'm, you know that all happens we'll we'll see um, and that's how it works too right if a coach goes from one organization to a new organization then you just take all the guys that were at that previous organization oh, yeah. and say, well, that coach has a relationship with those guys. So uh, that coach is going to try and trade for all of those guys <laughs> that he coached at that other destination. Well, we're, we're already talking about it here. If, you know, the if Tibbs indeed gets, gets the job at some point, you know, it's like, well, that means Taj Gibson isn't going anywhere. And, Right. Um, yeah, no, it, it does always work out that way. Listen, Chris, um, this was awesome. Um, it, I know, you know, you're used to crazy fans in Cleveland. I know you, they care a lot about the teams. It's, you know, the same thing here. So Nick fans are kind of dying to, to find out yeah. a little bit about, um, the newest hire and you definitely did that and more. So, um, really, I can't thank you enough for coming on. You know what? You bring that up, Jonathan, and you're welcome. I enjoyed it myself. But I think that's part of the reason why Brock was so interested in the Knicks is because he has a chance now to be part of that turnaround. And I think that was really, really appealing to him because of the fan base, because of the organization, because of the history. So I think that played a part in him willing to leave Cleveland, a place that he had been his entire career and a place that he was really comfortable with. So uh, I think that speaks volumes. Well, uh, listen, if he, um, <laughs> I'll say this, and again, I, I wish I, I wish I didn't have to say this, but it's true. The bar is not all too high. Uh, That's exactly right, right. Right now. So I, I, I wish that wasn't the case, but it is. And, um, if he comes here and he, he, you know, does some of his wizardry, um, I, I think he's going to maybe get his wish. Um, Chris, can you just tell the folks, uh, who are listening where they could find you? Yeah. I mean, you can find me a lot of places. All my stuff is at one place. Cleveland.com is the website. If you do cleveland.com slash calves, you can see all of my stuff in the river there on the website. And you can also follow me on Twitter at Chris Fedor. Nice and easy. Yeah. Um, you're, and I'll just say really quickly, a lot of, you know, I always say this when I have someone who covers another team, 
you don't really know what you're dealing with if you're a fan of one team until you start to know what's going on with other teams. And it's like, to me, it's like the most important thing to do is find a writer about another team that you could rely upon. And, uh, I, I, you know, your stuff is great. And, uh, I, again, really appreciate you taking a few minutes. I appreciate you saying that means a lot to hear it. Thank you. Of course, man. Uh, have a good day. Stay safe. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I'm sure hopefully we'll, we'll get a chance to talk again sometime soon. Sounds good. Anytime. Looking forward to it. All right. Be well. All right. I have uh, with me today a very special guest. Um, he is with CBS Sports. I uh, just wrote um, a great piece about the Knicks' newest hire, Brock Eller, um, and that is Sam Quinn. Sam, uh, first of all, thank you very much for coming on. I really appreciate you taking the time. Oh, absolutely. Anytime. Um, so we were we were just chatting uh, a bit, and I I said it's you know it's rare that I get to have anybody from the national media on um, who had something nice to say about the Knicks, but that is indeed what you did earlier today. You wrote a very nice article. Um, it's the first time for everything. <laughs> I was about to say yeah, this is the first time for everything. Hey, listen, I'm I'm a fan. I wrote about the team all the time, and. It's even tough for me uh, occasionally, but um, so your your initial tweet I thought was was interesting, which is that you were basically you were pretty unabashed and you said like this is a really awesome hire. Um, what what leads you to say that? Let's start there. Yeah, so if you think about the role that Aller's probably going to have in New York, he's going to be the capologist. That's what he was in Cleveland. I'm sure there's going to be some other expanded responsibilities there. But if you really think about it, how many capologists do you know? How many does how many do the casual fans? How many do you think they can name? I mean, it's maybe Andy Ellisberg in Miami, Mike Zarin in Boston. It's it's a pretty short list, and he's one of those guys that like you would read about the Cavs front office, and he was somebody who was really heavily involved in almost everything they did. And if you look back to you know when they were winning, a lot of that was facilitated by the moves that he made when they brought in LeBron and they built the team around him in 2014-2015. I mean, I believe they're the only team in NBA history to sign a max free agent one summer and pay the luxury tax that same season. That might not sound very impressive until you really think about no, it. No, I, I, I saw you wrote a, that. Yeah, when, uh, that's... Once you've added a max free agent, obviously it's hard to add more salary after that, and they added a ton of it. I, I was going to say, can you, like, because I, th- I read that, I'm, I had to do a double take, I'm like... Because it really, and I don't know the the cap, you know, as well as you do, but that's that's impressive. And it, it like you wrote about, it, so you had a piece that came out um, earlier today. It'll it'll probably be a, a day or so ago by the time folks hear this. Um, definitely go look it up, give it a read. It's really informative, and you get into some of the machinations. Um, this was not easy. Um, to build, to, to, to make the moves that it required. And specifically, you get into the Mozgov um, trade. Can you kind of give folks a little insight into, you know, why that was a little bit more, uh, there was more to that than met the eye at first? Yeah, so the Timothy Mozgov trade, it was officially made, I believe, in January of 2015. But if you really go back and look at all the moves that it took to get there, it really started in July. So when they signed LeBron, they had 1.6 million cap space left. And obviously, you're not going to get a real difference maker with that money. So they had to get kind of creative. Now, they could have tried to sign a bunch of cheap players and package them for somebody a bit more. But the issue there was if you do that during the season, 
roster size constraints are going to come into play. So what they did was with that 1.6 million, they brought in a bunch of players on non-guaranteed contracts and they waited it out until they could trade all of them again. In September, they took all of those non-guaranteed contracts and this was at a point when you could essentially trade non-guaranteed contracts as full cap figures. They dealt all of them combined to, I believe, Boston to get Keith Bogans, who was making, I think, $5.2 million at that point. And then they immediately turned around and traded Bogans into Philly's cap space to create a trade exception that was worth around $5 million. That way, when the debt war well, wasn't really the deadline, I believe it was a bit earlier, when January rolled around and Denver's looking for a Mozgov trade, the Cavs can say, hey, not only will we give you picks, we won't send you any salary back. We can just absorb him into this trade exception. And I think just from a Knicks perspective, not only is that incredibly creative, but that's long-term planning and preparedness. And that's something that the Knicks have, let's just say, struggled with over the years. So this was a move that happened in January, and it's being built over months and months, where they essentially, from a cap perspective, get a free starter in Timofey Moskov. And that's a really hard thing to do, and he deserves a lot of credit for facilitating that move. And, I mean, just look at where the Knicks are. You would hope in a few years they're at a point where they're signing max free agents. And when you're signing max free agents, it's hard to fill out the rest of your roster with good role players. This is a guy who's proven I can manipulate the cap and I can bring in those kind of guys. It's it's a great point, and, you know, especially coming off last summer where, you know, as I'm sure you know, it was kind of kicking the can down the road for a year. Um the one piece of good news with that and with bringing in a guy like Aller based on what I think he's already, you know, everything he's done is that I, I wonder, cause he was operating in Cleveland, at least in this situation with his back against the wall. And now he's going to kind of get more of a runway. Um, obviously it helps when LeBron James walks through the door and says, Hey, I want to come back and play for you guys. Um, it's a nice starting place, but regardless, um, I, I, I mean, you're you cover the entire league. You just named off, you know, a couple of guys that are respected all around basketball. Just in your opinion, how how much? Because um, I, you know, I think fans are always concerned about like the perception of the Knicks around the league. How much of a like almost like a facelift does this automatically give them to bring in a guy who everybody knows? Like, okay, we're not gonna be able to take advantage of of this dude. He knows what he's doing. it's tough to say. I mean, perception is a very nebulous concept. If you would have looked at Brooklyn, say, two years ago, we would have said it's impossible. They're not going to bring in Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, who would go to that dumpster fire. I think it's something that can change very quickly. And as we saw with Brooklyn, it was largely about bringing in a front office and a coaching staff that, you know, they were adults in the room. They weren't going to do utterly insane things like the Knicks have done for the past 20 years. They were just going to slowly and properly build a competent organization. When they got Durant and Irving, I mean, what? They were a 40-something win team. They lost in the first round. So, yeah, the Knicks have a bad reputation, and I think there are a lot of reasons for that. I mean, my pet theory, just as somebody who's covered games at Madison Square Garden, is the visitor's locker room at Madison Square Garden is awful. It's one of the worst in the NBA, and that's a small thing, but I think it's one of those little things that can add up. There are a lot of reasons that players around the league don't respect the Knicks. I think bringing in a really respected executive helps but they, there's still a long way to go. But this is a good step. And I would say, for now, the Knicks are doing the right things. Whether that continues, I mean, we'll see. We don't really know what Leon Rose's strategy is, what kind of players he's going to want to bring in. 
what his long-term vision is. So it's still TBA, but I would say this is definitely a good start. It's it's funny you mentioned the visitors' locker room. I, I covered the game this year where uh, they played the Grizzlies, and there was, I don't know if you remember there was that fight at the end of the game, and then of course uh, in the lo- visitors' locker room afterwards, I think it was no, it wasn't it wasn't Ja, it was somebody else was saying that there was no hot water left in the showers. So yeah, um, yeah, that was uh, that I've, was not a banner moment. I've been to plenty of arenas and I've never heard of that. No hot water in the showers. Like, yes. It's really amazing. It's something that I think we take for granted as people who've been in locker rooms. But yeah, the Knicks do not have a very nice setup for visiting teams. And I wonder if that's something the players think about. Uh, You know, I wouldn't blame them if they did. And uh, like you said, hopefully this is the first step of things to come. Um, Before I let you go, you know, you you mentioned, you know, Leon Rose is here, but, you know, the idea of, of moves moving forward. There's a perception, I think, about, you know, that he's not maybe under a mandate to win now, but there is this idea that, like, look, it's it's not it's not going to be another year like this year. He's going to try to bring in a name. Um, You know, obviously, there were the Chris Paul rumors and there's other guys out there. Um, One guy that I can't seem to get out of my mind in just in terms of I, I could see it happening is Kevin Love, which is interesting because Aller actually, I would imagine, was fairly instrumental in, in signing Love to his contract, which is it's kind of an interesting deal. I, I'm curious, and this is something I'm going to be asking guests probably over the next couple months because I, I just I can't shake the idea that they, they may look in that direction. How do you view Love's contract? Because it's, it's, I feel like it's on that weird precipice is like is it an asset is it an albatross is it somewhere in between like how do you personally view it i would view it as a negative value asset but a lot of that is contextual like one team that i think had kind of been mentioned in the kevin love sweepstakes if we can even call it a sweepstakes i mean it didn't really go very far but (laughs) in so much as there was potential interest was miami and for miami adding kevin love would be a real problem because having $30 million or whatever the actual number is on their books for 2021 would be disastrous because they have a real shot to get Giannis. For the Knicks, you know, not so much because, I mean, I think we're being realistic here. I know there are Knicks fans that have the pipe dreams of, oh, it only takes one great year and we can get in for Giannis or whoever in 2021. I think realistically it's going to be a few more years. So by the time the Knicks are really in a position to be winning, I would assume that love contract, if it wasn't over, they would at least be kind of at the expiring stage where maybe it's tradable or maybe you can extend him at a lower number. So I would say in context, I don't really mind it for the Knicks. Now, if you look at the roster, there are obviously a million power forwards, so there are other issues to work out there. Frankly, I think a lot of those guys are going to have their team options declined, but it's not the worst idea I've ever heard. It makes more sense to me than Chris Paul. It makes more sense to me than DeMar DeRozan. He's a really good locker room guy in the right setting. I don't know if New York is just because he's hated losing in Cleveland and New York is not too different, at least in terms of immediate prospects. But it's not something I would write off. I think it's an interesting idea. Yeah, it's 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 funny. I've, you know, I've been watching this team for close to three decades and it's the type of thing on its face where I'm like, what are you, crazy? That's That doesn't make any sense. But then if you actually stop and think about it for a second, for the exact reasons you gave, by the way, because I'm with you, I don't, I don't, <laughs> something tells me Giannis is not walking through the door in um, whatever it is, 14 months or however many months it's going to be until the 2021 offseason. Um, 
Yeah. Um, so we'll, we'll see what happens. Hey, look, um, I think it was, it was a great piece that you wrote today. Once again, um, I would encourage everybody to, uh, go check it out. Before I let you go, I have to ask, you wrote another piece, I guess it was, uh, today on Tuesday about three possible Pippin, uh, what if trade scenarios and one of them <laughs> included Michael Jordan coming to the Knicks and I'm sitting there I'm reading this I'm like you, you had to do this to me right now really all these years later yeah I, I, well it's kind of just for me I've thought so long about what if he'd come what if LeBron had come to the Knicks because he had several opportunities I mean he's been a free agent three times oh for sure and it never came to fruition but the biggest reason we assume was the Knicks weren't good well, in 1996, the Knicks were good, and the Knicks were a real free agent destination. In this scenario that I posited, the Bulls were not. They traded Scottie Pippen. I believe that was the Dan Marley trade. The yes, one it was. Yeah. So, yeah, Jordan wasn't going to stay there in that scenario. So who actually made him an offer in real life? It was the Knicks. In real life, the Knicks offered Michael Jordan $25 million that summer, and the Bulls countered with 30, and he stayed in Chicago. If the Bulls weren't good... I think he would have taken that offer, and with Ewing and um, who else was on that team? Oakley was still on that team. I posited that Rodman might end up there. Like, yeah, I think that's a championship team, and we look at Jordan sort of as the basketball equivalent of what Reggie Jackson is to the Yankees. Yeah, he won most of his championships elsewhere, but he came and he won in New York, and he was a savior, and Maybe there would be a big statue of Michael Jordan outside of Madison Square Garden. Uh, there would be because I, I would have built it uh, myself um, if, if that had chosen. I'm sure there are a lot of Knicks fans with spare metal that would be doing the same. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I read that and I'm thinking, wow, would, could they still have traded for Sprewell? Would they? Have, it's yeah, I, I, I went a little too pr- far probably down the rabbit hole. Um, Sam, I appreciate you taking some time um, out of your evening to come on. Um, I guess uh, anything you want to um, plug, promote, let folks know where they can find you before you go? Uh, yeah, follow me, Sam Quinn, CBS, read CBS Sports. We do a lot of really cool stuff. I mean, we've been really pounding the Jordan documentary. I mean, we're doing two or three big things about it every day now. So, yeah, just read CBS Sports, and thank you for having me. It was a, It was really fun. Uh, absolutely. Um, I think I kind of want to sign off all my pods now of uh, you weren't going to fuck up my summer. So, I, Sam, I'm just going to tell you, you weren't going to fuck up my summer, Sam. That, I don't, a little all right, of, sounds good. A little out of context, but that's okay. Um, no, I appreciate you coming on. Uh, definitely give Sam a follow. His stuff is great. He knows a whole lot about the NBA. And, uh, yeah, we really appreciate you giving a few minutes. Thank you. Anytime.